Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome Kate Haviland, CEO of Blueprint Medicines. Great to have you on today, Kate. Thank you, Rahul. Very happy to be here. Wonderful. So, Kate, to kick us off, would love if you could walk us through how you got interested in biotech, the arc of your career, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So my interest in biotech very much stemmed from my interest in science and medicine. And as a child, I was very interested in math and science. I actually had two uncles, both of whom were physicians. They were MD, PhDs. One was a hematologist, one was a medical geneticist. And they were very much for me impactful as I thought about my path forward. And I saw them doing both caring for patients, but as well as doing really cutting edge research. And I found that fascinating. And so as I endeavored on my college career, my plan was to do the same thing, to go forward and do an MD, PhD. And so I arrived at my university and my first year, I actually got a great position as a research associate in a yeast genetics lab and was very excited and took on my biochemistry major. And I got about six months into my first year at college and realized that I was a terrible research scientist. I did not enjoy it. And it just wasn't a good match for me in terms of my temperament, what I was really leveraging my strengths. And so I tell that story because you know, I've continued to love science and medicine. And I think I found a way to apply that interest in my own strengths by being part of the biotech community. You know, I can talk more about that, but I always try to tell people coming up in their careers, it's just as important to figure out what you're not good at and what maybe you don't like as much as it is what you are. And so I left college. I became a consultant in the life sciences industry, as many kids do coming out of university and had an op that was a great opportunity. I worked both here and in Europe. I saw all sorts of elements of this industry and really decided that I wanted to move from being in a more professional services capacity to being part of companies that were bringing important and transformative medicines to patients. And instead of working for them on a project basis or kind of not understanding where that work was going to go or how things were going to pan out. And so that led me to go back and get my MBA. I went to Harvard Business School and I came out of HBS and joined Genzyme as my first industry job and had just the great privilege of being at Genzyme at a wonderful time where it was a high growth organization, but had already really pioneered this kind of rare disease business model and had established it. And, you know, I learned a tremendous amount in my time at Genzyme that I then took and have leveraged going into much smaller organizations, been at four or five of those that culminated in me joining Blueprint in 2016. So I've been to Blueprint Medicines as for about seven and a half years. I joined the company when we had just opened our first IND for our first investigational medicine. And kind of fast forward seven years, we now have two medicines that are approved across five indications, both in the US and Europe. We have a broad pipeline of precision therapies, and we've really built a fully integrated global organization and been able to kind of deliver on the idea of the science in the lab to patients now globally improving and impacting patients' lives. And so it's been a tremendous, tremendous journey here at Blueprint, and we're only 12 years old, so we're just getting started. Wonderful. Thanks for that background, Kate. I noticed that you were at Blueprint and had various different roles at Blueprint. Talk to us about 
that transition to becoming CEO when you've been at a company for some time and perhaps a shift in your own mental model in terms of how to approach that role versus previous ones you have? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think there's a tremendous benefit to taking on new and expanded roles when you have a deep understanding of the history of an organization, kind of the fabric of the organization, you've been part of helping to build that culture and really understand the decisions that have been made multiple years ago, which of course impact where you are today. At my time at Blueprint, I had the opportunity, as you said, I joined as a chief business officer. I then took on the chief operating officer role and last year stepped into the chief executive officer role. Each time I've made those transitions, I've had to think about intentionally adjusting. I remember a mentor of mine telling me that as you get more senior levels in your career, your success becomes much more highly dependent on the success of your team. It's much more about establishing and creating a culture where people can do their best work rather than doing the work yourself. I've certainly found that, and that has become just even that much more important as I took on the CEO role, because not only is that the crux of what I do every day, as well as thinking about long-term corporate strategy and some of the other elements, but we're also a much bigger organization. So, you know, we're 650 odd people. We are global. We have people all over the U.S. Now that we have, you know, commercial sales team out in the field, as well as our medical team, we have a team in Europe. And so you don't know everyone individually the way you did when I first joined and we had, you know, 80 employees. It's a different dynamic. So I think it's the company's evolution has very much mirrored my professional evolution as I've gotten more and more comfortable kind of operating at higher altitudes within the organization, empowering the people around me and really working hard to set that culture where people can do great work. Kate, you spoke about your own evolution. What's an example of something for other folks that are listening that are first-time CEOs, myself included, what were one of the more kind of non-obvious shifts that you needed to make that you weren't necessarily anticipating stepping into this new role? Very good question. One thing that comes to mind is as CEO, I have to be more mindful of when I inject or interject a viewpoint or an opinion in the context of a conversation. It may be a meeting because what you realize is that people in certain roles, you know, the team, it can automatically shift to dialogue, which may be exactly what you want to do, or it can also stifle the sharing of additional ideas and people kind of thinking broadly about any given, whether it be an opportunity we're looking at, whether it be a challenge we're trying to address. And so I think that is, you have to be really intentional when to weigh in and how. Is it with a question? Is it with a comment? And I think that is definitely something that is much more on my mind. And I really do think about that in almost every setting I'm in. That's, mm, that's great feedback. Thank you for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit now about personalized medicine and would love to hear from your perspective, where personalized medicine is as a field and how it's transforming patient care right now and what you're hopeful about in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So at Blueprint, our entire focus as a personalized medicine or precision medicine company, and really we focus in specifically on cancer and hematologic diseases. I think that is really the forefront of personalized medicine, although it is expanding into other therapy areas. But really, most diseases, cancer certainly, is fundamentally a genetic disease. And what this does is really opens up just opportunities for us to understand that root cause of disease and to target it. And by targeting the root cause of disease, you have the opportunity to greatly impact patients and their outcomes while also minimizing the impact of the medicine on the patient more holistically, right? So like looking to minimize side effects, make sure that the medicine is not only addressing the disease, 
but also improving the patient's quality of life. And so I think that that to me is what we're trying to do with personalized medicine. And we have a number of medicines that have done just a tremendous job, including some that Blueprint has brought forward in the last, as I said, the last 10 years. But there are just medicines like Gleevec, like Tegriso, things that have just completely changed the landscape for patients with non-small cell lung cancer, with GI stromal tumors. Our medicine, Avakit, which is now in a rare blood disorder called advanced systemic mastocytosis, not only just changing the outcome of the disease, holding the disease at bay, but also greatly improving patients' quality of life, allowing them to participate in their communities, to be parents, to be grandparents, to be colleagues and continue to work. And so I think that is the promise of personalized medicine. And we are certainly seeing it come to fruition, but we're in the very kind of early days of that. There are therapies as those that I have mentioned, but there is so much research going on where personalized medicine is still something that impacts the lucky few that have certain genetic drivers where we'd be able to bring these medicines to market. And we really need to expand that impact and then also work on how do we sustain the impact over time as cancer evolves and as cancer is a dynamic process, it's not a static condition. And so I think there's a lot to continue to do, but personalized medicine has certainly driven tremendous changes in outcomes. I mean, I think the American Cancer Society put out a report in January of 2023 this year, which talked about how the U.S. cancer death rate has declined 33% since 1991. And they attribute that to a few factors, but one of the primary factors is the innovation in treatment and to targeted therapies, immunotargeted therapies, really just bending the curve and changing outcomes and truly extending life for people with cancer. Certainly lots of exciting progress that's happened over the last several years. would love if you could educate us on where Blueprint is now and what you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually just a few weeks ago celebrated our 12th anniversary. So we're 12 years old. So we're really in the early days of being a company. But in the last 12 years, we have taken on pressing medical issues that have evaded others. And we have found really important medicines that are changing the outcomes for patients. And so, as I said, we have two approved medicines and we are bringing those to patients now globally, either directly ourselves or through a constellation of partnerships that we have also put together that have been important to our success. And then what's very important is that track record of success has kind of earned us the right to be bold about what we can achieve. And we are Frankly, in my view, it's an invitation for us to take on even bigger medical needs going forward. And where we are right now is we have our two commercial products and we are on the precipice of potentially expanding the approval for one into a, a patient population that is much larger than those we have addressed before in a rare disease called systemic mastocytosis. And then we have a pipeline of investigational medicines that are moving forward in breast cancer, in lung cancer, and other types of ovarian cancer, other types of solid tumors. And those are more complex programs where we're looking to combine with a number of therapies to really stop the cancer in its tracks and help patients live longer and higher quality lives. And I think the foundation we have, having brought two medicines from our labs to now patients globally in the first 10 years of our existence, really gives me the confidence that we're going to be able to deliver many more transformational medicines to patients in the future. And so we're at a great moment in Blueprint Medicine's history. We have built all the capabilities. We have commercial capabilities. We have a commercial field team, both in the US and in Europe. And we're now at that place where we're able to very much amplify and expand the impact that we can have, both through additional research and development and by making sure that our medicines get to the patients who could benefit from them. From the outside, certainly seems like Blueprint's been highly productive. 
in a relatively short period of time. And since you've been there for seven, eight years or so now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on indication selection, particularly for early stage biotechs. You mentioned you joined at the time you were filing your first IND and to hear your perspective on, particularly given your commercial background as well, how your thinking around indication selection has evolved over the last couple of years. It's a great question. I think we think about what types of diseases we can tackle. I mean, first and foremost, it starts with what is the science? What's your understanding of the science? And what do you think you have a unique and differentiated way to approach that science in a way that is going to have an impact on patients? And so it always starts there with what is that biological rationale? How do we see that? How strong is that signal? And do we think that we can design and make a drug that could get after that biology in a way that's going to be important to patients. And so it starts there. And I feel like sometimes we then talk about building synergies and how to leverage your expertise. And one of the things I think we've always done really well at Blueprint is we don't take good targets for granted. So as you think about a great scientific target where you believe you have a differentiated approach, whether or not there's a specific synergy down the line does not necessarily mean you should not approach it. It's a good target and biology is hard. And honestly, this is an industry where we all work that, you know, failure is the norm, success is rare. And so I think, you know, following that science and being very scientifically driven has been kind of core to who we are as a company. And then having said that, when I joined Blueprint, one of the things that attracted me to the company was the idea that we're building a portfolio. That when you think about targeted therapies, they are designed to address specific patients who have a specific genetic mutation, which means that by nature, that opportunity is fairly defined. And so as you think about building a company, you've got to think, well, you may need a few of those to get yourself to that critical mass where you can continue to sustain an organization and build it over time. And so the idea was we need to build a portfolio, both from the perspective that this work is hard and things are going to fail. And from the perspective that these tend to be more discrete opportunities than if you're going with a therapy that is wide acting and not specific to a given patient. So I think both of those have really, that idea of building a portfolio and following the science has been the core to who we are as a company. It's enabled us to manage risk, to manage opportunities, to weather failures, and to do that all in a way that we've continued to build the company, build the expertise we need to be able to bring the drugs to patients ourselves. How you think about any specific indication, I think what all of us think we know and the numbers we put in our spreadsheet are just as much of an art as they are a science. And there's just as much unknown in that. And I think there's an element of doing that work and doing that with rigor, but also kind of taking a pragmatic approach and being willing to take on risk and to have a belief set that you continue to pursue. And it's that balance between calculating risks and understanding that just because it's an Excel does not mean that it's true. Uh, I think you have to really balance those two things. Yeah, certainly. As we think about recording this in Q2 of 2023, capital markets are in the midst of a pretty significant correction. Right now, every sector, including biotech, is impacted. I'm curious how the current environment is informing how you're approaching leading a publicly traded biotech and what advice you would provide folks that are listening in terms of how to navigate these interesting times. It has certainly been an interesting time and it has been for quite some time now, right? And we're, we all are looking for that light at the end of the tunnel. I think a couple of things come to mind. I mean, first is that when you're a publicly traded company, you know, the public markets don't care if you live or you die. You have to earn your place every single day. What I talk about with our team is let's focus on what we can control here internally. Let's keep our eyes on being rigorous and data-driven, making sure that we are allocating our capital 
to the places where we think we can drive the most benefits for patients. And if we drive that benefit for patients, we'll drive patient benefit for all of our stakeholders, including our investors. And so I think it's kind of keeping that focus on what it is that we can control here at Blueprint. Now, one thing we can control at the executive level is our capital allocation and how we think about the use of our resources. So we are fortunate to have commercial products. So it's nice to have revenue coming into the company. And we're fortunate to have a very strong balance sheet, but we never take that for granted. We are constantly looking at what we're investing in, what we think the return on that investment is going to be. Do we think we're going to be able to have the impact we want to have on the patient population we are looking to address? How do we think about partnerships? When is the right time to partner? And that could be for strategic reasons, such as it's an indication that's large and highly competitive, and therefore having a big partner to help pursue that will allow us to capture the full value that we wouldn't be able to capture ourselves. But it also has financial benefit. You bring money into the company, you decrease your investment, you're sharing investment on a program. I think that level of rigor in terms of operations and execution is something that we've always done at Blueprint. And I think it's just become more important. And I think in the time we live in right now, scientific promise is not enough. It does not always translate into business performance and you need strong execution and you need a team who can really focus on that and think about how to make sure that you're investing in the right things, you're controlling what you can control, and you're earning your place every day in the public markets. And mm. I think those are the critical things to do. I'd love to double click on one of those topics, particularly given the time we're in right now. I think many in the sector are anticipating, and we're starting to see a lot of this, not just layoffs, but also consolidation and perhaps increasing clip of partnerships. I'd love to hear your perspective on what the right partner looks like for you, given all you've seen across your career? I think it depends on what we're looking to partner. I mean, we've done partnerships with big multinational companies like Roche Genentech with our drug Gavretto quite literally a few months before we're getting approved. And the idea there was for them to really help put tailwinds for the drug in terms of how we find patients, how we get them onto therapy, how we get them tested because of the kind of skills and the attributes they bring. And then we've done geographically focused partnerships or distributorships for specific countries, or we partnered our, a couple of our drugs into greater China, which helped us with development. It actually helped the development go much faster because those disease states are highly prevalent in those geographies. And we were able to kind of bring patients in quickly and get to those global inflection points faster. We've also been on the buy side. We have been in the place where we want to work with a company because they have unique technology that we think would be highly beneficial and synergistic to what we're doing. And so to me, you know, partnerships can take many different forms and they need to all be elements of your corporate strategic approach. And what are you strategically trying to do? So for one, one of our programs, one of the most exciting is we call it Blue 222. It's a CDK2 inhibitor. Well, this is a very, very important biological target and some other people are also looking at it, but we know it plays a significant role in cancer. So it is an opportunity to not only be a very much a precision medicine approach in certain types of tumors like ovarian and endometrial, but also to be used much more widely in breast cancer in combination with other therapies. When we step back and look at that, that's a great place to have a company that has heritage in breast cancer, that has that kind of experience to potentially come and work on that element of it while maybe we take the more precision approach in endometrial and ovarian. So to me, it really has to match with what you're trying to achieve with the program and being really honest and humble about what it is it that we are really good at and where is it that someone else may be able to bring expertise or capacity or just general heft behind something both financial and from a people and talent perspective that is going to enable us to 
maximize the impact of that therapy, even if we own a smaller fraction of it, right? And so I think you have to know what you're good at. I think you have to know what you're trying to achieve with a program and understand what type of partnership would make the most sense. I definitely think consolidation is something that does make sense. We actually acquired a company called Lango Therapeutics last year, hmm. and they had you know a lead program that is a tremendous program. It's the profile we were looking for for a specific subset of patients with EGFR-driven lung cancer, but it's going to be very hard to build a company fully around that program. That program really is best suited within a portfolio because it's a very important biological target. Those patients have significant medical need, but it's not going to be a blockbuster commercial opportunity. It's going to end. And so it's very difficult to kind of build an entire commercial organization around an opportunity such as that, for instance. And mm. so that's where, you know, consolidating things and getting those portfolio synergies and being able to leverage across an infrastructure that you're building starts to make a lot of sense. And so I think that's where we're going to see some of the capital access dynamic is going to create some nice synergies and consolidation, maybe not in the way we all hoped it would, but in a way that I think will ultimately be beneficial. And Kate, you've been in this role now for a bit. And when you're making that transition, it can be a lonely journey when you're in that CEO role. I'm curious how you've been navigating the emotional aspects of being a CEO, but yet still being that evangelist and the champion that your team needs and what you found that works well for you, given that context. I always say like there are days that are great and there are days that you've got to remind yourself to be grateful, right? <laughs> you kind of walk out of the office and things did not go as you planned and maybe you didn't show up the way you wanted to or whether it's technical stuff on the programs. And, and so I think part of that is having a really strong team. And I truly believe that being a leader is having that confidence and knowing where you're going, but also being able to admit when, hey, this is not how I wanted it to go. This is not what we were hoping for, but let's move forward. And I think we have an incredible team here at Blueprint. I think that's been a great element of stepping up into the role after having been here for a number of years. I trust my colleagues immensely. And then I think part of it is that being in the Kendall Square area, I know so many other folks who are in my position who I can send a quick email to or and we can grab lunch or grab a coffee and we just walk out and go meet each other. And that's hugely beneficial as well. I mean, I think the ecosystem here in Boston and be able to have those moments where you have those relationships, you can just bounce an idea off somebody really makes a tremendous impact. And then the last thing is, you know, I have two little kids. And so no matter what happens, when I walk in the house, they could care less. You know, they just want me to help them build their Lego or like do whatever, whatever it is they're doing. And that keeps you really grounded. You know, it's amazing how kids can really cut through all the other stuff and just kind of make you remember a little bit of like, what's important and can you just kind of give you that other element of life that helps balance everything, right? There's certainly that peer-to-peer -peer support. I think the team you have and the trust you build and the idea that having some vulnerability and talking about the days that don't go as well actually helps everybody at the company because it turns yeah. out like all of us have bad days. And, and so that's something that having that real kind of genuine human interactions with your leaders, I think is incredibly important. Yeah, certainly great. Thank you for sharing that vulnerable aspect of yeah. being in the role that you're in. Asking you to reflect one more time now. I'd love, given all that you've seen, if you could talk to us about what's one piece of advice that you wish you could provide your younger self, given all the experiences that you've now had. Well, I mean, one of them certainly is bet on yourself. 
there's a lot we can't control in life. There's a lot we can't control in our environment. We can always control on what we do and how we show up and the impact we can have. And very early in my career, I would raise my hands to take on temporary challenges or project work or be involved in certain initiatives. And I think that made a huge difference. I got a broader exposure that way. And I never kind of held back because I hadn't done it before. I just had the confidence to say, A, when people want you to succeed generally and taking on something you've never done before does not mean you're not going to do it well and you're not going to figure out how to do it well. And so I think you want to bet on yourself, have confidence in what you can control. And the best thing you can do is what it is, how you show up and the effort you make. And then I think secondarily is that just getting comfortable with ambiguity. Coming from a science background and a technical background, I want Excel to have the truth in it. Like I, you know, I want that next set of clinical data to come out and show us exactly the way we should go. And it turns out that none of that is ever really true. And the minute you kind of de-risk, you learn something, you also open up a, another set of questions that you're going to be looking to answer. If I could get my younger self to get more comfortable with that idea and be able to kind of take decisions in a way where... You don't have to worry about being right. What you have to do is not be so worried about being wrong and just kind of move forward and understanding that if you don't make a decision, you're making a decision. Get comfortable with the ambiguity, take a decision, move forward, pivot later. I think that to me, if I could help my younger self get more comfortable with that faster, I think would have been really beneficial. Yeah. On that point of ambiguity, that certainly resonates. And oftentimes many of us are stuck in kind of paralysis mode. What's the process that has worked well for you to break through that fear of failure when dealing with ambiguity? For me, I've always sought diverse perspectives and really valued the experience of the people around me and getting the perspectives of your colleagues and having debate and dialogue because fundamentally, this is such a complex business that we are trying to build and run. It has risk, it has failure, it has successes. There are numerous stakeholders. There's patients, there's physicians, there's investors, there's macroeconomic issues coming to play. It's very complex. And so you have those diverse views, those multiple point of views around the table and learning to integrate that and just coming up with a decision because there's very rarely one right answer to anything. It's more about being willing to take the decision and move forward and understand that you never have full information. You're never going to have perfect information. Waiting for the next preclinical study or whatever it may be is not necessarily going to shed any additional light on what you need to do. And so, as I said, like you just need to take that decision. And I think mm. surrounding yourself by great people, both diverse experiences, both life experiences, mm. work experiences, technical expertise, and really understanding their view and how they think about it and integrating all that, I think is what becomes mm. so important. Great. Well, Kate, on that, a piece of salient advice. Thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing a bit about your experience and wishing you and your colleagues continued success during these exciting times at Blueprint. Thank you so much, Raul. It was such a pleasure to meet you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.